This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. Photography has been around for hundreds of years. During that time, many photographers have tried to make something new and fresh-looking. That's why it was jaw-dropping. Hell, it was mind-blowing to think Dave Sanford shot something new in 2015 that had never been seen before. Nobody has made the images we're about to talk about. You want to talk about, like, putting pressure on yourself. It's, it's like, uh, at one point, it, it hit me where it's like, you know, there was four of us shooting, but it, essentially it's like I, I'm, like, thinking about myself and, like, I am the, I am the, the eyes to the world for what's happening here. Like, I'm, I, there's only two of us in here shooting this and pumping it out to the rest of the world. Like, there's nobody else here. So if I don't get it, or if he doesn't get it, then it's not seen. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to my archives. My guests have ranged from Oscar and Emmy winners, Hall of Fame basketball players, educators, and the great professional photographer, Greg Gorman. Justin said to me that more beforehand, he says, Greg, who do you know that's famous that could come down and be in the movie with us? called Andy Warhol up at the factory because we were shooting right there by, by his office off Union Square and Andy came down and was in the movie because of me. The rest of my conversation with Greg can be found on our archives at justagoodconversation.com Let's take a quick break for a sponsor before diving into part two of my conversation with Dave Sanford. I'm going to say when, when I first saw your photos in 15... I've been listening to Gordon Lightfoot's, you know, uh, wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald for 40 years. As a kid, my brother would play it. My mom would play it. I play it now on my Yacht Rock, you know, Pandora radio station or whatever it is. When I saw your photos, it put pictures to a song I had been listening to for 40 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 a pretty uh, amazing compliment. Thank you. Yeah, it was because um, Gordon talks about it, you know, in the song, and it's a beautiful song about a, a tragic event. But when I saw your photos, I thought, my God, man, like those poor bastards on that ship had this taking them down. Like the way you presented that lake, and it's a lake, but it's a lake the size of some seas. It's massive. Yes. And it's got this weirdness to it because it's not deep, it's shallow, but it's it's got this and it's got that. It's not a normal, it's not Lake Tahoe. Correct. And and there's a lot of there's a there's an energy around Lake Erie that I don't find anywhere else. No. There's there's so much, you know, with indigenous culture and the and the the stories that they tell about Lake Erie and the spirits and the folklore and just the mysterious deaths that surround Lake Erie, especially where I shoot. Um, There's been all kinds of deaths, unfortunately. Um, It's, it adds to that whole eeriness of Lake Erie. Um, The the mystery and, and, you know, when, yeah, when I see this unfolding in front of me too, I, I often think about, the the men on the Edmund Fitzgerald and that night I was only a little kid then when that happened, but it, it's something I've grown up with and I always Mm -hmm. remember. And 
think about at that time of the year. And I can't fathom what they went through. And especially to like, I'm, I'm, I'm witnessing this during daylight hours. Right. When this happened to them, it was in under the darkness of night in the middle of Lake Superior. So, you know, when you can't see what's coming at you, it's, it's, it's almost scarier in a way. Right. You know? It was um, a monster. It really yeah. was, you know, something they could not see until it was upon them. Yeah. So, so it's, um, yeah. So to hear you, to, to make a comment like that, that's, that's pretty special um, because it, it and I, and I've heard similar things, you know, it's hundreds, maybe thousands of comments that tie in the story of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, like with all kinds of people on social media that have said things of a similar nature. And, and to me it is, it's, it's quite the compliment. And there's been a number of publications that when they talk about the, the, the history of, of what happened um, with, with the, the Edmund Fitzgerald, they've reached out to me and used my photos because until I took these, and this is what I've discovered on my own through my own research, I think over the years and so many other reporters doing research on this, nobody shot waves like this before until, yeah. uh, until I did. So that was part of the, the whole viral aspect to it is that nobody did this. Nobody attempted it in a way in which I did. And, and when you go back and you look at the, the, you know, when you look up this stuff, there just there was nothing that existed. No, I mean, you and, mentioned Warren. His his photos of the waves were pretty. Guys yeah. used to shoot this all the time in Hawaii. They're pretty. They're curls. It's sun coming through. They never shot it when it was murky and mean, and waves were crashing and the winds blowing. And God love you, yeah. Dave. You put your ass in the water <laughs> for the love of God. You know, you didn't decide to take a 600 on a lawn chair way back by your car and shoot it. You put your hiney in the water and shot it. And you made some of it. I mean, there's images. You can go through all these images. Some of them look like miniatures. They don't look the size that they are because of your perspective and you have foreground waves in the foreground that are soft and some are out of focus. And, and it makes this almost like if you had little miniature boats in there, it would be like this perfect little, you know, World War II scene where the you know Nazis are trying to take Norway and they're coming upon the water. It's like, it's, it's, it's unbelievable when you look at each little different photo, when you have streams of light, the sun coming through on some parts and other, others are backlit and they have like this bad mullet curve, you know, <laughs> hairpiece going on. I mean, there's so many characteristics to it. It's, it's just unbelievable that, you you were so fortunate to stumble upon your creativity and go, I see the lake this way. Uh, very fortunate. As I say, I, I owe so much to Lake Erie. Um, it, you know, because that, that series of work, which I've just, I continue to work on since 2015 at each season, um, it, it has, it's changed my career. It's been instrumental and, and, it's allowed me, afforded me all these other opportunities that I, I only dreamt of growing up and, and, and places that I've now been able to visit and see and, and the things I've experienced. So um, I will be forever grateful to Lake Erie for, for the opportunities that it's presented me. From the time you shot it, you know, to the last time you shot it, what have you done differently? What has changed? I mean, I saw what, what wetsuits you wear and I've, 
like when I would go surfing in the winter, I'd wear like a five, four, three, but you're like in an eight. I mean, yeah, good eight. God, how do you move around? <laughs> I mean, you must be like that kid from Christmas story that can't walk. He's just arms are stuck straight out. Like it is kind of what I feel like. Yeah. The Michelin man or something. Yes. Um, and you got a hoodie and the whole goggles and, I mean, you look like you're yeah. trying to escape the law, Dave. <laughs> you look like... I, I was hoping you were going to say a Navy SEAL or something. Well, but... yeah. <laughs> I think those guys are, you know, without a shirt on, those crazy nuts. <laughs> God love them. But what, what's changed for you in those eight years? Um, well, what, one of the things that, that you know, like I said, uh, I was the first one to do it, and I can genuinely say that, and it's really cool to think – especially in this day and age in this era and in photography, that something really hadn't been done before. Um, and, and I remember those days in 2015 being the only person on the beach. Um, nobody else was around. Like people, people have always driven up to that beach. There's a little like a traffic circle where you can drive up and you're only like 150 feet or so from the, the water's edge and people will drive up and stop and they sit there for a few minutes and they watch it from the comfort of their car and then they move on. Bye. <laughs> and, and some days that's underwater because the sage like pushing the water up has, has got that traffic circle underwater, like all the way up, maybe hundreds of feet past that. And sometimes there's sand dunes that have blown and the, the roads shut down. So it, it's, it's gnarly to think, you know, the changes and how that, that, how it transforms that area. But again, like you get the odd person who would walk out there and take a look and they're standing leaning against the wind and, you know, it, 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 and then they go away and I was by myself. And some days it's like, you know, temperatures are in around the minus 20 Celsius mark and the wind is, is, hurricane level one like you're talking 75 miles an hour um kilometers wise i think the peak was like 109 or 111 or something like that i've seen there and i've seen that several times so it's really gnarly and you're getting sandblasted like i've had to get two cameras repaired i've had to get lenses repaired um from sand damage yeah that front element Oh. Yeah, it's it's just ripping across the beaches, and it it gets into everything. Like I've come home with with blood red eyes because, and your skin is sandblasted, like this part of my face. Um, it's crazy. But what's really wild to see now? I was just down there four or five days ago. I think it was Monday, maybe I can't remember. Um, but we just had a day where the lake went off a few days ago. The conditions were right. And when I pulled up, there was 12 photographers on the beach. And the most I've seen, I think, is 25 or 26. But any given t day now when, when Lake Erie is going off, there, there's, there's a row of photographers that are along the beach. I'm still the only one that's gone in the water that I know of. Okay. Um, but it's it's really wild to see and, and how many people over the years have contacted me or come up to me to say like, I'm here because of you. And that's really damn cool to think I've done something that stood out so much that it, it inspired others to come and see it or take their own crack at it. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's, that's one thing that's really different. 
um, is, is not being there alone and showing up and seeing all these people there. So in the last year or two, especially, I find what I've tried to do is, is shoot it differently than I've done in the past and differently than what other people are there doing. So I've been doing a little bit more land-based work and shooting with 600 or 800 mils of lens from different vantage points further down the beach or, you know, either in either direction. Mm -hmm. I've been, had the good fortune to, to get to know some people in the town that I shoot in and they I've befriended them and they've been so open and helping me to get onto people's private property to get these different vantage points. Some of them are from a cliff uh, overlooking. So I'm just trying to add variety into the mix now. Okay. And, and even when I have been shooting, um, you know, I've been shooting with shorter focal lengths and, and different things to, to try and get more, more of the atmosphere, I guess, of everything around versus just that one wave that I've so often focused on. So, and it's not, again, part of it is, yeah, I'm trying to do things to, separate myself from other people but at the same time too it's it's keeping myself motivated and and you know if you're doing the same thing over and over and over it 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 can be a little bit mundane but the the cool thing i think about doing things over and over and over when it comes to nature wildlife or sports is nothing's ever the same you could you can show up and shoot in the same spot on a basketball court night after night after night and no two seconds are ever going to be the same right Yes, it's the same environment, same atmosphere, same people, but every night is different, and it's no different with nature and going to the lake. Every single day, every single wave is different. So even if you do shoot at the same all the time, what you're capturing is going to be different than it's not like you're taking a product and putting it down in a studio. So, But at the same time, too, I, I do like to keep myself on my, I like to stand my toes, I guess. So yeah, I do like to explore those alternate angles and showing things in a different light or, you know, and what I did the other day was an area that I, you know, I, I saw some of the other people's work that they've produced from it. And I was like, Oh man, you know, but at the same time, <laughs> cause I didn't get what I was hoping for. I needed the right lighting conditions to really make it spectacular and the light kind of dissipated. So I've got an idea, you know, like it's there. I, I won't pump this stuff out because to me it's average. Um, so I'll just keep going back at it and, and until I do get something that I think looks spectacular and then I'll, and then I'll put that out to the world. But it's just, it's nice to, as I say, to, to go shoot something that's the same, but do it in a different way, whether you're using different focal lengths, different vantage points, um, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and I also definitely spend a lot less time in the water. Um, uh, it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, I've been there, done that. I proved that I can do it because it's dangerous. It's scary. Yep. It's cold. It's hard. It's, it's, it's no fun. Right. I mean, <laughs> it not, looks grueling. It is. It's so, it, it's is it a workout where, Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I last at an hour to an hour and a half at the most. Wow. Um, I'm shocked. That's that long. It's dra- It's draining. You're, you're physically, you're always battling against the water. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it's, it's a, it's a washing machine. It, it's the water's moving in all kinds of different directions. You, 
you're contending with rips, you're contending with debris in the water, um, you know, waves that, like I say, they're not just, ocean waves are a bit different, whereas lake waves, they're constantly pounding. And I'm dealing, uh, the waves that I'm shooting are a little further out, and when I'm in the water, I'm always dealing with the waves that are constantly pounding, coming into to the shore, and you've got two seconds, basically, between each wave. So you're constantly duck diving, you know, and you have a shot lined up and then all of a sudden a wave is in front of you. And, you know, so your take home percentage is very small. So as I say, I've, I've been there, done that. I've proved that I can do it. I'm almost 50, I'll be 50 this year. So it's one of those things where I'm just like, I've had so many injuries and surgeries and I've, I've made mistakes in the water, which have really scared me in the past. And it doesn't not, it's not to say I'm not going in the water, but there's a lot of time now where I'm just like, all right, I've, I've got my catalog. I, I don't need to prove this to myself anymore. Um, I can continue to do it in other ways. And, um, you know, like I say, I'll still go in, but, um, I, I do approach it very differently you know, nowadays versus eight years ago when I started doing it. Were there any moments that you thought you were going to be pulled out? In Lake Erie, no. Okay. Uh, I think uh, there's definitely moments where I'm like, okay, this is, I need I need to back up. I need to shift myself. Because sometimes you, when you're out there, like I, I'm still always able to touch the bottom where I am. It's right. relatively shallow. And if I couldn't touch the bottom, it would be a lot more difficult for me. Um, cause as I say, the water's yeah. moving in all yeah. kinds of different directions. So you need to have that sort of grounding. I'm wearing a wetsuit, as I say, eight mil wetsuit. I'm very buoyant. I still wear a, a, a life vest on my upper body and I wear one like a diaper. Okay. So I'm not, if, even if I were to go under, I'm not going to be under there that long because I'm so buoyant and I'm a buoyant person to begin with. Like I can lay back in the water and float forever without anything. So it's, but, but yeah, it might mean that I have a long swim if I were to get pulled out and that hasn't happened at Lake Erie. It's happened to me in the ocean. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's a little bit freaky, but again, having learned from somebody like Warren, I I've learned long ago to not panic in those situations and what to do and just literally go with the flow. And yeah, you might have a longer swim after the fact, but um I, I it, it's when you panic when you're in a rip or if you get pulled under things like that, that's when things can go sideways. So I'm pretty calm. I, I respect the water and that's why when things, when my spidey sense starts to tingle, that's when I'm like, okay, I need to back off here. Yeah. I mean, she's undefeated. <laughs> yeah, I, Exactly. I don't like to get myself to the point as well. And I'm like, a, that's why I'm only in there an hour and a half because the water's cold. The air temperature is even colder most of the time. And, that drains your energy pretty fast. So if you push yourself to the limits and then something were to happen to you, you're, yeah. you know, you're putting yourself in a really bad position. Yeah. You're so, depleted at that point. And the last thing I, I want to do is have to put somebody else in a bad position because I was too stupid. And then, then they have to put themselves in a risky spot to come save me or something to that effect. Right. So the, the Lake Erie event happens how quickly then are doors starting to open up for you for, for gigs you would not have imagined 30 days prior? 
um, less than, yeah, less than 30 days. Um, I, I'll, I'll never forget December 23rd, uh, 2015. And I was visiting my parents and my phone rang and it was a gentleman from an expedition company that unfortunately doesn't exist anymore, but, um, he called me up and he was like, um, the, we, we saw a clip of you on one of the national news networks. Um, and basically it was how it kind of went was if you're crazy enough to do that, I want you working for me. And he owned an expedition company that toured the polar regions. And I was asked to go to Antarctica three weeks later. And like I say, unfortunately I couldn't do that. And it, it took me four more years before I got to Antarctica because hockey kept, you know, it was Damn a roadblock. Every time that, like, because Antarctica isn't somewhere where you're going for a week. Right. So it was, you know, a month minimum up to like two months type thing at a time. So it, it my, my commitments to the NHL just kind of kept getting in the way of that. And um, it wasn't until, like I say, until 2019 that, that things were able to work out. And I've been fortunate to go to Antarctica twice, but, but yeah, that all happened. I, I posted, I believe it was December 4th of 2015. I posted that article to board Panda. And as I say, December 23rd, I was asked to go to Antarctica. Jeez. So th- things started to change like almost overnight. But as I say, it was 40 years of work. Yeah. Right. Behind it. it you were not out of the up. university walking down Toronto, downtown Toronto, and someone said, Hey, young lad, you want to come to Antarctic? No. Exactly. <laughs> Jesus. Where, <clears throat> okay, so were you then saying, Okay, I'm committing more time outside. I'm going to shoot more this animal, this animal, this animal, and opportunities now are just flying at you? Yeah, it, 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 th- Back in 2015 was when I started to realize, like, okay, yes, I can make a real go at, at a career in, in nature and wildlife photography. Um, if I set my my heart to it, if I work hard at it, and um, I, I'm, you know, already a door had opened, so I'm like, I'm just going to keep pushing through this door. And so, yeah, I did. I, as I say, I had the conversation with the NHL worked out a, a working solution for both of us and um, started to devote more time into my nature and wildlife photography. So not just time outdoors in the field with the camera, but I got back to my roots as a kid where I started to read a lot more and watch more documentaries. And I started to make, you know, more inroads in that nature and wildlife photography community, uh, be it, with other photographers or scientists, researchers, um, volunteers, wherever I could gain knowledge on the subjects that I wanted to shoot. Um, I I approach my wildlife no differently than I do my sports where it's like, I'd like to be a student of the game and, and, you know, there's a few animals over my career, I guess, that I've always focused on that I guess, because they've been my favorite since I was a little kid. So I just dove into learning more about them so that when I'm in the field, I'm not, I'm, I'm better prepared. You okay. know, I want, I, I wanted to, you know, I've always been a student of wildlife, but 
I, I had to bump it up another level. Yeah, that um, next real level of understanding their habitats and their tendencies, not just like they're cute and fuzzy. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, you, you as a wildlife photographer, you can go out into the field and waste a whole lot of time and come home with nothing. If you don't, if you're not looking at the right time and the right places at the right time of the year, um, from what you are wearing to the sense that you carry to... You know, there's, there's all kinds of things. Like the list is huge. And, you know, you, you, I never really realized how many different hats that you have to wear as a photographer, like as a wildlife photographer, right. especially because you have to learn. I mean, you, all of a sudden you're, you're organizing these trips. Whereas like I was working for all these organizations over the years, you know, cause my wildlife stuff's been a mix of assignment work and then, my passion projects that I'm self-funding or maybe looking for a bit of funding for. And then I'm, I'm earning my keep after the fact, but you know, I go out, I shoot it and I sell it after the fact. So you're, you're organizing and planning trips. You're, you're learning how to track animals. You're, you know, you're working with guides and, and scientists and researchers and you're having to market your own material and promote yourself. And, you know, there's all kinds of, as I say, all these different roles that you have to partake in as a wildlife photographer that I, I simply didn't in sports. You know, sports, I was a hired gun and, and that was it. Right. Whereas, you know, and, and yeah, I still had to, I was still a student of the game, but I think there's a, nature's a, a much bigger game, <laughs> if I may say. There's a lot more to learn. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot of things that you need to learn because if you do things wrong, you can put yourself in harm's way. You can put the animals in harm's way. Um, so you want to do things properly, you know, and it's, I'm still learning every single day when it comes to my nature and wildlife photography. Um, wow. But it's, it's a welcome challenge, you know, and, and I, you know, and, and we talked earlier before we started getting into the podcast about, how different these two worlds are oh, sports photography and yeah. wildlife. But for me, there's a lot of similarities as well. Um, in that, like, again, for me personally, being a student of the things that I photograph and shoot, I, I, that isn't any different for me. I want to learn as much as I can about my subjects. Um, but in, in the approach to how I shoot them, it's often very similar, you know, like you have to learn, the tendencies of your subjects. You have to anticipate these moments and you have to, you know, one of the differences is wildlife. Yeah. You've got to put yourself in the right spot versus in sports. You're sort of, you know, if you have the luxury of working for a league, you can say, I want that spot. (laughs) Um, Or you're, you know, you're assigned your spot. And so they're, but you know, how I shoot them, I think are very similar, right? You know, I'm looking for that peak moment of action. I'm looking for in different emotions and expressions from, you know, whether it's an athlete or whether it's an animal. Um, so, and, and I truly think, again, I go back to all my years of shooting on strobes and being a one frame every second and a half to two second shooter it forces you to be a better photographer and that, that has served me well in, in, you know, my nature and wildlife side of things as well. Cause I, I, you know, I know people both in sports and in wildlife who go out there 
you know, I just I did the outdoor game in Carolina back in February, and one of you know younger photographer, newer photographer had uh, I can't even remember what it was. My gosh, I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty thousand images. I shot over the whole entire weekend. I think I shot maybe like fifteen hundred to two thousand collectively. That's practices, games, ambience, pregame, all that stuff, you know, like. Oh, my um, God. I shoot my average hockey game. I think I shoot like 300 to 350 photos. Um, And that's my approach in in the field as well. When I'm out there, I don't want to be shooting 20 frames a second and have all this crap that I've then got to sit through when I get back and sitting on my computer. Right. Yeah. I always prided myself on, on getting the moment. And while I have a camera that's capable of 20 frames a second, I have it capped at seven or eight frames a second, I think. And I still don't shoot that way. I'm still very, you know, don't get me wrong. If, you know, if I'm going to witness an owl coming down to attack a rabbit or catch a vole or a bird in the air, or if I'm shooting two bears that are sparring, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to be shooting multiple frames, but I, I, again, I think shooting as a single frame shooter has really better prepared me for, you know, anticipating my moments um, with my subjects and, and, you know, a lot of wildlife is, is action just like sports, you know, you're, and, and so I do approach them in a very similar manner, I think. Do you treat, like if you're shooting a polar bear or a deer, do you shoot it like you're shooting a portrait, like it's an actual subject for you? Yeah, I do, for sure. Um, again, depends on where they're situated, where I'm situated from them, um, the lens that I'm using at the time, all that stuff. But when those opportunities arise, yeah, I, you know, like I say, there's so much Animal, people don't give animals enough credit. They're much more similar to us than most people think. And especially mammals, they, they, they think, they feel, they have emotion. And that's what I'm trying to show. And uh, often those portrait opportunities that come up, you can show that. You can, you know, when you can fill a frame with a deer's head and, and or a bear's face and, allow people sort of that, like the eyes are the window to the soul. Mm-hmm. And, and this allows me to make that connection for somebody who otherwise may not get to see that. Like, like my sister, for example, she, you know, she's un- unfortunate with her health that she, she'll never be in these situations where she can go to the Arctic and, and stare at a polar bear face to face. Like I can. Right. Um, so not just her, but there's, there's millions of people just like her. And that that's part of my motivation is that I want to be able to share these things with you. I want you to feel the same things that I get to feel when I'm in the field. So I'm going to do my damnedest to make you feel that. And if, you know, if that's a portrait or whether it's a a loving tender moment with a, a mom and her fawn or a bear and its cub or something like that, you know, I, I'm just, I want people, I want people to feel and, and recognize the beauty in nature so that maybe they feel a little more attached to it and they'll want to do a little bit more to just to be better in their life for nature. So, um, so yeah, I definitely like to take advantage and, and, and again, mix it up. It's no different than I think when we're shooting sports, 
yeah, everybody wants that great action shot of the, you know, massive slam dunk of somebody's, you know, kind of dunking over top of somebody. Um, you know, the peak moment of a player sliding into home plate and, and the play at the plate, the, 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 the net cam shot of a, of a guy deking around the goalie at a peak moment. Everybody wants those. Those are the great, you know, but, but it's the other, it's the, the, when the guy's standing on the free throw line or he's lining up in the line of scrimmage or in the batter's box or lining up for a face-off and you have those opportunities to get those portraits that aren't in studio that show the emotion on the athlete's face and the, you know, literally blood, sweat and tears. Sometimes they're so impactful and, and it's no different in nature. You know, I, I want the deer jumping over the log or I want the, the, the osprey screaming down into the water and grabbing the fish. And yeah, I want all that stuff. I want the bear sparring, but I also want, I want those intimate moments yes. that, you know, like I say, that are more of the, the window into the soul type moments that, that, you know, help really hook people and captivate them and get them to see them maybe as a, a, a more of an equal mm-hmm. and not as a scary beast or a, you know, um, adversary in the woods. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. When I look, when, when I was looking at your website, there, there are some images in here. Walk me through it. Like shoreline lunch. Is that a remote shot? That's the two polar, the two uh, grizzly bears eating that beautiful yeah. salmon. Yep. So That's when you're shot. when you're setting that up, what's your process to okay, knowing that this is where they're going to bring lunch to on the beach, and I'm going to set up some kind of in a in a log, or where are you putting your camera so they don't decide that it's a toy? <laughs> <laughs> it's almost impossible around bears to put a camera somewhere where they're not going to think it's a toy, <laughs> even even underwater they'll find uh, it. Um, bears are very curious; they've got an amazing sense of smell. And that's a, you know, and they know there, it may be a forest or the tundra or whatever to you, but that's their home. Right. And it's like, if you walked into your home and you notice something is different, you're, you're, you're going to notice it right away. Um, and so bears, bears are very curious that way. So it's almost impossible to put a camera where they're not going to notice it or see it or, you know, and some bears are more inquisitive than others and others are a little bit more afraid they're all different. They're just like people. We're all sure. different. Everyone has a different personality. So when it comes to a situation like that, that was the sort of the main goal of that trip was capturing, you know, remote imagery versus camera in hand. Okay. Um, I, I was working with another photographer, a friend of mine, Graham Purdy, and my friend Drew Hamilton, who's an amazing bear guide. And so it, it, it all started with Graham, saying, Hey, let's, let's do this bear trip. You and I think similar. We both will want to want to achieve something like this. Let's do a trip focused around, you know, using our remotes and with the knowledge of, of Drew. And I think that's, that's a huge thing in the wildlife world as well. Working with knowledgeable, um, knowledgeable and um, ethical, and local guides. Okay. Um, it, it benefits so many different 
you know, areas, benefits the animals, benefits the local community, benefits that individual, benefits you. Um, because I don't have to worry, you know, I'm with somebody who's knowledgeable of the local location of the animals, more knowledge than me. And they're there to allow me to do my job at the best of my ability. So it starts with stuff like that. And then when you're out there, it's like, okay, Drew is very familiar with this area. So he's like, yeah, the bears will come down this shoreline, you know, but we go out there and we still observe and you watch them and we're still shooting with cameras in hand as well. Sure. But yeah, it's, it's about going out, observing, working with somebody who's already got prior knowledge, picking your location, setting things up at a time when you, you know, when the bears aren't around type thing or they're preoccupied somewhere else and then patiently waiting and, that you know and there's a lot of patient waiting when it comes to wildlife (laughs) and i mean as you know as thrilled as i was to to have that experience in alaska you know we we did like a full week where we flew in on a float plane float plane got dropped off and we've got our camp we set up and 10 days or a week later they come pick us up and that's it like we're we're out there in the tundra with the bears so you're fully immersed in it and I still came home, you know, it, again, it's like where I don't, I hate this about being a photographer. I think it's, it's a disease we all have. I came home with brilliant imagery. I know that I did, but at the same time, I didn't come home with what I had fully envisioned with the remotes. You know, it's like, uh, if only the bear had been, you know, a foot to the left or a foot to the right, or if this blade of grass wasn't in the way, or if, the bear's eyes were opened or the light or the time of the day or whatever it may be, or bear comes up and it's like, Oh, what's this? And it paws at it and move things. And then two seconds later was the moment that you were hoping for. There's all kinds of factors that come into play that you have no control over. And it's again, I, I'm really happy with what I came away with, but has left me wanting more right. and I will, I will go back and continue to try and improve on what I've, what I've done and learn from my mistakes and, you know, hopefully do it better the next time. What about the playful Fox? Another remote shot? Uh, no, that was me laying down, trying to think of images off the top of my the right, titles and everything. Um, no, that was me laying down on my stomach in the forest. Um, so these, these foxes, this family of foxes, this was up by our cottage, and I have a, a friend of mine who the fox's den is close to her property. She basically lives in the middle of nowhere okay. and has a very, like, that's on her property. It's a very forested, like, natural, like, she doesn't, you know, it's just natural forest. And um, earlier that year, the this family of foxes, sadly um, got the the disease of mange, which affects a lot of foxes, especially in urban areas. And it's just, it's horrible. They, their fur gets crusted and their eyes get crusted over. And it, you know, it's like a parasite that lives within them and it drains everything that they, doesn't matter what they eat or take in that parasite takes it all. And eventually the fox will die and it can be passed on to other foxes. So she worked with a local vet and medicating these this family of foxes that lives near her and so she essentially saved this family of foxes and this was a number of months later when they're 
you can see this fox's tail there. It's a little yeah. thin. It's not as nice and bushy and everything. Um, and and because she was, you know, these foxes are on her property. And how are you going to get a, fo- a wild fox medication? Well, you've got to put it in some food for them. So the the foxes were somewhat habituated to her and her girls from doing that earlier in the year. So they're not afraid of humans. Foxes have a, a very natural curiosity. So I learned many years ago from, again, from being in the field and working with other photographers, the lower you go, the more likely you are going to have a good encounter with a fox. So that's whatever I do. Whenever I'm in the field, when, I, when I'm around foxes, if I have the opportunity to get on my belly, that's what I do. I'll lay on my belly. So yes, these foxes were somewhat, somewhat habituated to people. So it made, made it a little bit easier. But I've also been up in the Arctic and had the exact same experience laying on my stomach and foxes will come up within a few feet of you. So they come up, they sniff, they, they kind of, you know, that, that sly look where they're like, are you okay? Or are you not? And they're very jumpy and it, it can, you know, lend itself to some very interesting looks with a, a short lens. Do you, do you remember what you shot that with? The 16 to 35. You shot that with a 16 to 35. Yeah. Holy crap. It looks Yeah, fantastic. only within like five or six feet type thing. Yeah. Wow. So what is there what kind of post production work is on there? So <laughs> I go because I'm like I laugh at my post production uh work or skills or whatever. I don't know how to so I I have a folder that I keep on my phone and it's called, I want to make images that look like this. And it's a folder filled with. Damn it, Dave, that's my folder. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a folder that's just filled with many years of inspiring images to me that, and and, and it's not in it, but it's all in how the image looks, Mm -hmm. the final look of it. So this sort of brings us full circle to my art days when I was younger. And I started to discover this with my Lake Erie stuff when I started to work on that because I was like, I want this to look like how I envisioned it in the field. So I started to really do a lot of burning and dodging. And to the point where I'm like, my Lake Erie stuff, back in 2015, like I'm working like three, three and a half hours on a photo because I'm zooming into like 200% and I'm going over every little detail, whether I want to make it darker or lighter and zooming out and going back in and just trying to manipulate the light that is there with the skills that I essentially learned in a dark room back in the day. Mm -hmm. Um, But now this, you know, the computer being our modern day dark room. So that's sort of evolved over time to, with my wildlife stuff to be like, okay, I want to, I, I, like, I, I guess it's more of an artistic looking image. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it's yes. kind of painterly and I love so, it. It's beautiful. Thank you. So I laugh because I'm like, I don't, I don't have any, a special technique or way of how I work on my images. I have the basics in Photoshop of like each, you know, that that get applied to each image. Right. But a lot of it for me is I'm self-taught when it comes to Photoshop. And a lot of it is sitting there and just trying shit. 
<laughs> playing with sliders and using filters, but I'll apply a mask and then I'll apply a filter. But I never, ever use a filter that like just apply it and there it is. It's mm-hmm. like I apply a filter because I'm like, I like the way it makes the grass look. So I, you know, and then I might tone that down a little bit to where I like, and then I'll mask out the animal or the background or whatever. I've taken four courses now with different photographers just on post-processing. And because there was elements from each person where I'm like, I love that. And, but I didn't want to just be like, okay, I want to be a carbon copy of all these images in my folder and all these photographers. So I took all these different courses and I've kind of taken little elements from each person and I've thrown them into a blender with my own knowledge. And it's sort of like, that's, that's how I get the looks that I do. It's by applying all these little things from each person. And as I say, I really have enjoyed, I, 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 I guess I'm going to say stretching the limits of my, my nature and wildlife photography. I, I don't like to move pixels. I want to keep it as true to, you know, the, 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 the raw image as I can, as far as that's concerned. Right. So I, I will just manipulate light and dark dodging, burning. I, I will play with different tones and color and, and shift like that. Um, but I, I, as far as like moving objects or like, things like that. I'm like, no, that's, that's not me until very recently. And now what I do is, um, for example, like say I have an image with a deer Mm -hmm. and I've got a really distracting branch that the light is hitting and it's a real bad highlight and it has nothing to do with the image. Right. So what I, what I, what I've done in this, it's been a struggle because I've come from, you know, the sports world, especially where it's like, you have to have your, your art editorial integrity and that image has to be, you can't move pixels. You can't add things. You can't take things away. So what I will do is I'll work on an image without moving any pixels, but if it has a minor distraction in it, like, like I say, like a branch or mm-hmm. a, a real bad highlight or something like that, well then I will save that file and there's my editorial file. So if a magazine or an editorial or somebody contacts me or a competition, that's good for that. Most of what I do with my nature and wildlife stuff is going on somebody's wall. Right. It's an art piece. So that's where I've finally come around in recent years over the last six, seven years where I'm like, yeah, I'm going to remove that distraction. I'm going to take that branch out because it doesn't, it doesn't have any real impact on the final image. Mm -hmm. And somebody is more likely to put that on their wall versus something where I'm like, there's an ugly distraction there. So I've, I've evolved in my photography that way. When it comes to, like I say, I, I keep my editorial files and everything and that's for magazine publication, competition, whatever it may be. But my pieces that I'm going to put out there as an art piece that are going into a gallery or going up on somebody's wall or whatever, I don't, take issue now with with removing those minor distractions and and actually too i'm working today earlier today i was working on my very first composite image i've got a photo of a i shot last spring of a uh 
a doe and her fawn. The fawn was born like hours earlier. It was born that morning. And they're walking down this row of trees, walking away from me in this tall grass. And the mother was probably about 20 feet ahead of the, the fawn. Okay. So in the first frame that I shot, like my focus and I'm shooting at like five, six or six, three or whatever. So 20 feet, I've got a shallow depth of field. That little fawn was not in focus. So the mother paused and turned and looked back and I took a frame. And then uh, like a half second later, the fawn did the exact same thing, turned around and looked over its right shoulder as well. So there's no way that wildlife things happen fast or whatever. There was no way that I'm going to adjust my exposure to get to compensate and get 20 feet of depth in there. So the only way that I could do that was I shot the mum. Next frame, I changed my focal point to the, the fawn and I shot the fawn. And for a year, I shot it last spring for a year. I've been sitting on this and today was the first day where I'm like, yeah, I'm going to make my first composite image and I put them together and I'm still working on it, but I don't have, I, I, if this was me 10 years ago, I would like, no, I can't do that. I get it, but I can't do that. Right. I've changed. I've evolved. And I'm like, yeah, I can. And, but I'm also not going to put it out there and be like, this is my photo. Mm-hmm. This, it will come with a caption that is like, this is a composite image and I'll basically explain what I just did. Sure. And I do, I do find that it's much more accepting in our world today. Oh yes. You know, like that, that's the only way I would have been able to get that and create that. And there's, they're my photos. There's two of them. They just are being sandwiched together. So I could envision it the way that I did when I was in the field. Yeah. And so I've enjoyed, you know, and I, I another image recently I, I just worked on is I shot a, uh, great horned owl. I okay. shot it at ele- like eleven thirty in the morning, on a sunny autumn day, and it's under the canopy of a tree and everything. But again, with having learned different techniques in Photoshop and studying what other you know other people have done and taking these courses, I've now got to a place where I'm like, I can finally work on this image and create what I've envisioned, and that was an owl at night, essentially. Interesting. So. I, without moving a single pixel, have now produced an image of a great horned owl that looks like it's under the cover of night and, you know, really dark blacks and blues and the way the light's hitting it and everything looks almost like moonlight coming in on it. And, you know, there are those people that exist out there that'll be like, well, that's fake okay, maybe it is. It wasn't an owl shot at night. It was shot in in the, the, you know, midday essentially. Mm -hmm. But what I love about it and why I say it's sort of come full circle for me is when I was younger, I drew and I sketched and I painted before I got into photography. And I love that. And what I've found in the last six or seven years is I really enjoy my time working on the images in post-production and really making them come to life the way that I've envisioned. And especially if I can do it, as I say, without moving a pixel, um, it's even more gratifying to be able to do that. And how I achieved the look I got with the hour showing a friend yesterday, 
And she was like, how the hell did you do that? And I'm like, I don't know because I'm too much of a, after 25 years, I'm still an amateur in Photoshop, I think. And I was able to do it, but it's just going in and trying things. And like, I do make notes. So like this mm-hmm. worked and, you know, but, but I really enjoyed essentially working on that image and allowing and bringing it to life in a different light um, to create a piece of art that can go on somebody's wall that I know somebody will find this image much more appealing than the one that the raw image that came out of the camera. And at the same time too, it gives me an opportunity in a strange way to go back myself and sort of spend more time with that animal. I really enjoy that. Like, cause I work on my pictures for hours at a time Wow! and it does, it gives me this, this I'm back in the field and in that moment. Right. And, it's the two of you again. Cause yeah. Cause a lot of wildlife moments are fleeting and I'm very fortunate. This owl I've had numerous encounters with it lives like 500 meters away from my home. And <laughs> I, I, I know where to find it on a fairly regular basis. And, and just like our cats and dogs, they recognize us. Well, over time, this owl has learned to recognize me. So I can, I can be in a closer proximity than the average person. Wow. For, it took, that took months and months and months. And what's really, like I say. Does he cool pose for you? Kind of like a model? Like, hey, Dave, honestly, <laughs> how are you? I wish it was quite Get like my that, good side. Honestly, the owl, this owl has, I've been out there and not seen the owl. And then all of a sudden, boom, 20 feet in front of me, the owl will come and land in the tree. That's happened six or seven times now. So that's pretty special to me. Wow. Um, you guys have this synergy know. going on. Yeah. And I, I, I love I love being in the, being able to be in the field with an animal with wildlife and leave it on my own accord. Sort of like, you know what I mean? Like I didn't flush that animal out. I didn't scare that animal. I, I let it be, you know, and like, all right, have a good night of hunting and, and I'm going to go home and do my thing. And you do your thing. And that's, that's a pretty special thing to me that if you can, I guess, develop the, enough respect from an animal. And that takes time from, again, working in the field with the same animals. It's no different than the deer that I work with. Uh, three years ago, I started working with a herd of deer that, you know, in the beginning, it's like I didn't even see them. I'd hear them and they'd be gone. And now I feel like I'm a part of their herd, like, because it's, it's how I conduct myself in the field. And I, I do all those things, like I say, what I wear, how I smell, um, and how I conduct myself in the field has allowed those deer to understand that they, they they're, again, animals aren't stupid. They can recognize you, they can smell you, mm-hmm. and they, they, they know you from me. So by putting that time in and doing things properly, I've allowed, I've earned their trust. So it allows me when I do go in the field and I, and I do find them, or maybe they find me, it gives me a better opportunity with my subjects. Wow. Uh, so that is amazing. They're still wild, but people say, Oh, whatever. And I'm like, well, if your neighbor's dog can recognize you all the time or your neighbor's cat or somebody's bird, why can't, why can't a deer or a raccoon or a fox or whatever it may be? Yeah, um, sure. They it, can. It, absolutely. They can. Absolutely. So, you know, and again, it's, it's taking that time, and, and I have that time, thankfully, but you, you have to invest a lot of time if you're going to be able to 
sort of develop a relationship as I use those air mm-hmm. quotes with, with a wild animal like that. But um, it gives you those opportunities. And as I say, when I'm back on my computer and I'm working on those, I, 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 I don't feel like I'm just staring at some owl. Like right. I'm, I'm staring at an owl that I know, you know, I'm looking at an owl I know and I get to relive while I'm working on it, all these different opportunities I've had in the past with that particular animal. And, and, you know, and sometimes it's more fleeting where it's like, yeah, this was a Fox that I saw for all five seconds, got a great photo of it. And I'm, I'm never going to see that Fox again, maybe, but it allows me to relive that experience and go back and, you know, sort of take a deeper dive into the moment where I, I might've been preoccupied with like the technical side of things. And um, I can sort of see it in a different light after the fact. So, but I've really enjoyed the evolution of my nature and wildlife photography to the point where I'm like, again, like I say, I go back to my art days mm-hmm. where I'm like, yeah, I, I feel more creative freedom now. And the fact that like I've learned these skills both with my camera, so in the field, so I can, I'm A, setting myself up to be able to do what I want and post after. So I'm working with the light in the field to make it look, you know, because I'm, I'm pre-visioning what my final look is going to be. And I, I do, I really love and enjoy that, that getting onto the computer now and playing with it and experimenting and getting these different looks. And as I say, like, Sometimes I will apply a preset filter, but I, I'm going to apply it to one portion of my image and then maybe only at 25% opacity. And I, I just love that creative freedom to, to, to manipulate the light and the tones to make it look like my own unique vision. So, um, and, and I'm finding, and the, and the reason I keep going down this path is because I do think it helps me to, stand out in a community of wildlife photographers. Um, it allows me to be a bit different. And it, it, it's that avenue again for that creative side of me to be super creative. But it's been so well received. And, and what's really cool to see in the last six or seven years in wildlife photography is this evolution of the things that I'm speaking about being more acceptable in the community. Sure, you're going to have your old you know, the old guard who's like, Oh God, no, you can't do this. I talk to those people all the time, but I, I don't care because right. I'm like, I, I'm enjoying this. There's an audience that enjoys this. And like I say, it allows me, it allows me to stand out from a lot of other people. And it is a lot of time and effort in post-production, but it gives me something that I'm super proud to put out there. And I know that people want to put it on their walls because I'm making those sales and the the editorials are coming around as well. And they're starting to say like, yeah, no, this does work. Like what, how, you know, I, my dad is the one who's always said to me, like, how is it any different than a wildlife artist? You know, like, and like I say, I get, if, if there's anything that, like I, I don't, I don't hide this stuff that I do. Mm-hmm. Like I'm happy to talk about it and open forms and everything. And it's, it's similar to what an artist does because I I've been like, I've worked with artists that go out into the field and paint in the field or go into the field and take a photo and then come to their studio and then they make their painting. Right. And that artist, if there is that distracting branch or 
highlight or something, the artist has the luxury of taking that out. Sure. And nobody ever, nobody ever questions like, Oh, was that scene real? Yeah. Where's you that? Know, like, where's that branch? I know that tree. <laughs> right. So that's part of my thought process is like, you know, yeah, if I'm creating an art piece, like, like I say, I want to keep it as true to the original scene as I can. Sure. But sure. if there's something minor that doesn't have a, an impact on the overall image that really impacts the integrity, like a distracting branch or blade of grass or, you know, uh, backscatter in the ocean, you know, when you're shooting underwater and, and, and the way that light filters through the water and all that, all the little dots that, that you pick up, those are really ugly and distracting. And it takes a long time in Photoshop <laughs> to go through and remove those little distractions. And because it's like, why not make the image look, because I don't see those with the naked eye when I'm in the water, yes. at least not all the time, mm -hmm. but it's like the camera can is much more sensitive so it can pick up things that our eyes don't see. So I'm like, yeah, no, I want to see the way, see it the way that I saw it in the water. So I'm going to remove that backscatter. Um, you know, so I, I, again, it's like, I, I really evolved over time when it comes to my, my post-production and, and, and everything. But I'm, I'm all, I've always been that person where I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to take like, oh, there's the, the moon here and I'm dropping this in and I'm, oh, the, the face from this animal in this frame was better. So I'm putting it over here and, you know, building something that way. Right. It's more, like I say, I just like to manipulate the light and tone and, and get, you know, if there are minor distractions from, from my website for those final art pieces, I will remove them. If you and I were going to the, north pole to go shoot animal x what's our what's our day look like what are we what are we doing what gear are we bringing what am i wearing what are, what are you putting me through dave to make these photos <laughs> i guess it depends on where in the north that you're going right and how you're doing it because, i'm following you <laughs> um, there's there's different you know like i mean i worked for an ex, ex, expedition company for a number of years and i'm working out of a ship that's my home base um, and you know, I have the, the luxury and comfort of sleeping in my cabin on the ship, That's um, nice. but I also, you know, but you're out in the elements during the day and you could, you know, I've been in some crazy situations in the polar regions, like scary situations, just, just with the elements. I'm not talking about animals, yeah, just, just the, the weather, themselves. mother nature. Exactly. And it's, it can be scary as hell sometimes. And you question what you're doing and, and you know, your own safety. And what was some bad stuff? Just, what were you, what was, what was it? I think one of the worst ones ever was I was in Antarctica or just North of Antarctica, uh, you know, King George Island, which is an Island, not part of continental Antarctica, okay. a little bit North. And we, we were disembarking to, um, uh, I can't remember what it was, getting ready to fly home or whether we were dropping passengers off. And, but anyway, we had to disembark at King George. There's a airstrip there and you fly from there to South America and the, the weather down there, you just never know it can, and it can change on a dime and it can be, I mean, you're talking about the strongest winds in the world and some of the roughest ocean in the world and coldest ocean in the world. So anyway, one of my scariest moments down there was, 
um, we launched our Zodiac to go to shore. I was part of the lead team to go to shore and, and get set up there and then receive the others coming in, help the other Zodiacs coming in. And in that time frame, like where it would be like a 10 minute run into shore, uh, in the time frame of craning over, like from the main deck in mm-hmm. the Zodiac and down into the water and just getting into the water within minutes, like it was like a somebody flipped a switch and the waves just became enormous, like massive swell. And the wind picked up, like the wind had picked up and a storm was coming in and, and it was like raining sideways and it was just around the freezing point. And we've got gear and everything that we're trying to, keep down and protected and the water's just swamping over top of the the zodiac that's what it was because i remember yeah we were supposed to fly out that's what happened because i remember i was wearing i was just wearing pant normal pant i didn't have um i didn't have like my you know my my winter winter gear right all the all the weather protective gear and everything on only on my upper half because that's how calm it was when we were launching and then everything happened. So I was freezing and we, we thought we were going to flip because as we're coming into that, that shore, there was a shore break and we're like, Oh my God, like we're, this is going to end in disaster. Like, and it was too rough to be able to go back to the ship and crane up on the ship. Oh, so we we were in limbo. Like we were like, we've, we have no choice but to time it. And that's where you need an experienced, ocean going zodiac driver who knows their shit because otherwise that could have ended up disastrous for all of us right there's only there was four of us on there but you know and then getting to shore and having nowhere to go and no protection and me being freezing cold thankful like we were on radio we were able to get somebody to come from the airport down with a van so could get in warm up get a change of clothes and things like that but that was really scary it was it was horrifying in fact and and, and I had a similar situation in the Arctic and Greenland um, where I actually was <laughs> not my fault. I was left behind. <laughs> uh, oh. Somebody wasn't checking off our crew and um, I had no money, no ID, no passport, no credit card, nothing. And I looked out on the horizon to see a little dot on the horizon. That was our ship as it was heading further up the coast of Greenland. And um Long story short, I, I survived that. Um, it, but again, nice, really nice, beautiful day out. And then, boom, as as the ship was on the horizon, the weather started to change. It went from being above the freezing point to well below the freezing point. Went from, like, basically, you know, little rolling, lapping waves of half a meter to, like, I forget what it was, something like five meters swell that day. Um, you know, the whole it was a comedy of errors and and like i had to contact and get another ship in the harbor to contact the bridge of our ship and it, it was a whole and, and it ended up being a, like a big four-hour ordeal and um that that ride from shore all the way back out to where the ship was because the ship couldn't come in anymore due to low tide and the conditions um, it was like an hour and a half ride out where I wasn't, Ill, I wasn't prepared with what I was wearing. I had camera gear, I had computer on me and, uh, craning up was pretty horrific. I remember, um, it was a, it was a pretty traumatic situation. Like I remember getting on back on board and like 
shaking, not just from the cold, but shaking because you're like that, that was life threatening. Like it's, yeah, you know, there, you get into some pretty crazy conditions and that's just the weather, you know, like it's, it's so unpredictable in the polar regions. Jesus. So but anyway, yeah. What, I, I, what, what do I need? What the, boots do I need? What socks? What hats? What am I wearing? Now yeah, you've got me again, terrified and I'm a religious freak. Cause I'm praying to God. We don't drown the water. <laughs> It's, it's all, like I say, there's all these other elements where I, I always say you dress for success. So yeah, like it's, it's all about layers and, and, you know, like having dry footwear and extra gloves and like keeping dry in, in the polar regions is key. you got to stay dry. And, you know, I, I, like other areas I've gone to, I've been, I've stayed in cabins and, you know, I've always had that luxury of somewhere warm and dry to go. The thing I want to do probably second most in this world aside from polar bear denning when the mums emerge with their cubs. I haven't done that yet. That's that tops my list of anything and everything I want to do. Um, if we know any millionaires that want to fund that, uh, anyway, (laughs) I second on that list is, is shooting up in the Arctic during the, the spring months, like coming up now, um, and, doing it from camping out on the sea ice, like going to the flow edge where ice meets the open ocean Mm -hmm. and experiencing the Arctic that way. And that's something I've yet to do. And it's something that I dream of doing. And I hope that I have the opportunity to do one day. But again, you're talking about it's, it's dealing with the Arctic and its elements in a whole other extreme level. You know, it, it, knowing the the people that I know that have done that, um, you know, again, keeping dry is key because you have nowhere to, you're, you're camping in a tent on sea ice on like underneath you is frozen ocean below that is open ocean, you know? (laughs) So there's, there's that you're, you know, the extremes, the darkness, the cold temperatures, because you can't escape it. You have a tent that might be where you keep some stuff warm and everything. And, Yes, you're, you know, you're in your sleeping bag at night and all that. But again, like just talking to a, a friend of mine a couple of days ago about boots and having boots that you can remove a liner when you do that, because if, you know, my boots, I don't have a removable liner. They're good to minus 50. But if you're camping on sea ice for two weeks and you're sweating in your boots, you're, you know, that moisture is a killer. Right. They're just so there, those are little things that you have to take into consideration and, and are a factor. And, you know, again, with your, your layers and how well you dress, you need to be warm enough, but you can't be sweating. So you find yourself, you know, in a situation where that sweat gets into your clothing and it gets wet and damp and you, be, you become chilled. And oh, so there's, there's different ways to approach the Arctic. Like there's communities that you have places where you could stay and go from there. A lot most, how most people see the Arctic is how I've seen it mostly. And that's by being on, an expedition ship and then doing little day trips here and there. So um, where you're doing landings and going onto land or, you know, taking the Zodiac out and having adventures around the sea ice and on the water. So it, it really varies in how you can see the Arctic. Um, and, and that really do does depend on, you know, what type of gear you're going to be bringing and, and using and wearing and, and how you're going to function. Jesus. I mean, that it's just unbelievable. Like what goes, you know, from some of these photos that you've made and what you want to do. It's like, you think about it and you go, Oh my God, that is so much work before you even get a picture taken. 
my yeah. God, the things you got to wear and get to. Yeah. And then the protection of the gear. And you, God forbid, exactly. nothing can fail on you. You know, things start to yeah, freeze. Oh, exactly. Then you've got, yeah, you, when you're dealing with the cold elements, I mean, and you've, you know, batteries and things freezing. And, yeah, where are you charging batteries you know, in the middle of nowhere? Um, well, I, I haven't had the experience, like I say, of being in the Arctic in the, in the winter or spring. Um, but like, you know, the people I know that do, yes, there's a small generator that they'll use so they can do things like charge, charge batteries, a camera. Okay? Yeah. Minor things like that. Like you're not plugging in your space heater and no, you know, the, like the camera batteries are the most warm. important thing. Like if you have no so, camera, you have nothing. The, Exactly. And, you know, I mean, dealing with frostbite or, you know, the potential of frostbite, things like that. There are all kinds of factors that you say that come into play, but, you know, and if you're, even if you are working for somebody, the cost of getting to the Arctic is astronomical. It's not cheap. Um, yeah. It's like Mount cost Everest to, cost, right? Yeah. Like, like to do anything in the polar regions is, is, is very expensive. Right. To like operate. six I mean, figures. You know, cost of, Fuel, well, not, not, I mean, maybe for a big outfit or something, but okay. for an individual, like if you want to go to the Arctic, you're probably looking at a minimum of about five to $6,000 if you wanted to do the Arctic for a week, you know, in, in the, the most affordable way that you can. Um, oftentimes it might be 10 to $20,000 and even more for Antarctica. So that's how my wife's oh, going to go. She's going to go the 20,000 <laughs> route. There's no way she's going to go five. <laughs> With a nice warm cabin yeah. and yeah, like you're exactly so that or she'll buy your yeah. prints and look at what you did and then <laughs> never have to go. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, all those things are a factor. And, and, you know, that's why sometimes when people are like, you know, you talk about pricing of, of my work and, and what you sell it for and things like that. And, you know, it's not like I just put it in the forefront, but that's why I do utilize social media and, and things like that to put it out there as to the what you go through as a photographer to create these images. Not only your time invested, but like the, you know, the, the money invested, not only in gear, but places maybe that you have to go. And then the grueling situations that you put yourself through in these extreme situations that are potentially life-threatening. Sure. They are. And, you know, so, so yeah, when you put a price on something, it's not just that tangible piece of photographic art paper, you know, or, or a photo in that, or put that into a frame and mat and put it on your wall. It's not just that, that you are paying the photographer for, you know, you're paying them for their years of knowledge and experience and expertise. And then, as I say, to, to travel to these places where you are putting yourself through these extreme conditions, working with some of the biggest predators in the world, um, be it above water, or below water, and then the conditions of mother nature herself that, that she throws at you. So there's, there's a lot of factors I think that come into play that a lot of people don't necessarily take into account when they're looking at wildlife photos. Like I think, that's one of the unfortunate side effects of the internet and social media. It's, it's, we're, it's, we're bombarded with that stuff on a daily basis. You can see it anywhere and everywhere now. Right. So people get a little desensitized to it and they don't necessarily think about like what that photographer might have had to go through in order to get that shot. Mm -hmm. um, because as I say, there's, 
a lot of extreme things that you put yourself through in order to create a photo. What are you finding more challenging underwater or above above water? Cause I'm seeing that great white shark shark. And I don't know if that's yours. But I've seen some of the whale things and which one have you, have you found to be like, that's a lot of work uh, under underwater or being in the water, shooting yeah. at the surface of the water, either or either of those are the most challenging for sure. Um, it's, you know, when you, when you're getting underwater, you're throwing yourself into a whole world that is essentially foreign to us as humans. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we don't have a natural way to breathe under there or anything like that. We don't have the maneuverability that marine mammals do. And you're trying to photograph marine mammals <laughs> that have all those abilities and superpowers. And you're taking your camera and putting it into a water housing which, yes, I can still function all the buttons and switches and bells and whistles that I need to, but it's a much different, you know, it's, it's bigger, it's bulkier, and, you know, it's just the ergonomics of it are different. Then you're throwing a mask on most of the times and, and yeah. or a snorkel or a regulator, and um, you've got fins on and, like, you know, looking through a mask, looking through the back of a water housing, into your camera's viewfinder. That's all. I mean, your field of view is so narrow and, and you're trying to, you know, like when I shoot, you're always, at least, you know, I think most pros are shooting with two eyes open for the most part. And you're always trying to look out of your, especially doing wildlife and sports. I think you're always trying to use your peripheral vision to, you know, know what's going on around you and be better prepared for what's happening in front of you. Yeah. So, Throw, throw in going underwater and wearing a mask and shooting through a water housing, you're, you're eliminating all that. So um, your sense of awareness and what's around you shrinks a lot more. And um, yeah, it just adds a whole other element of uh, level of challenge to creating your, your imagery. Jesus. All right. Tell, let's, let's talk about this. Cause when I saw that you guys were there, when you spent, more than two months in Edmonton during the pandemic when all hell's breaking loose and people have no idea how to photograph anything, where to go. You got to stay six feet apart, like the whole nuts of 2020. You raised your hand and decided to go into a bubble in Edmonton of all places. Tell me about that. Like what, what were you thinking and how did it go? Well, I grew up an Edmonton Oilers fan, so a chance to see the Oilers win the cup on home ice, I wasn't going to pass it up. Obviously, yes, you didn't you're do that. <laughs> but you're um, not just shooting Edmonton. <laughs> you were no, shooting half of teams on the east, right? Didn't they split it up into two? Well, I, I, was, in, I was in the west, so okay. I was doing the western conference, and then the east, yeah, during conference finals, the east came, came into our bubble. Um, yeah, the bubble was... How was that approach to you? Uh, uh, um, uh, it was a phone call from my, my boss, Kara, and she was like, hey. Um, I got an idea. Be, do, do you want to work the bubble in Edmonton? Um, you know, I honestly, I would have been, I, I, I would have been devastated, I think, if I didn't get asked. Really? Um, okay. Yeah, I, okay. I would have. I, I, I. I had a feeling it was going to be a unique experience and 
just the challenge, I think, of doing an entire regular season's worth of games in under two months was something that I was like, wow, this is, this is going to be wild, you know? Like, um, and I, I guess just because I have been at, you know, I've been at every major hockey event in the last 25 years. And this is different, but it was clearly, it was the event. It was the only thing. Right. So to go from doing all these major events over the last 25 years for the NHL, if I wasn't included, as I say, it, it definitely would have stung. Um, and I, I would have, you know, I, I, yeah, I would have been home crying in my beer, I think. <laughs> so, um, so how did it go? Where is it like, okay, uh, we're going to pick you, 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 and this is our plan. Or was it kind of Dave, how would it work? Was that brought yeah, forth? Um, well, I, I think it was, you know, they, they, they wanted to utilize the team photographers given it's in their buildings. You okay. know what I mean? Like yeah. nobody, nobody knows home. Like, you know, your home. Um, and, and it would again, probably be quite unfair to, you know, to, 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 to not ask them to be a part of it. Right. Um, and then I think like where for myself, you know, in the East, um, the two guys that were there, Mark Lynch and, and Chase, um, um, Dean Angelo, um, or is it Angelo Dean? I just, I always <laughs> mix up his last, I finished his last name, but uh, you know, Mark being the, the guy in Toronto, brilliant photographer, very deserving. Chase has this technical know-how as well. Um, and sort of a bit of a management, uh, skill that he's got. Okay. So I know that those things, were part of you know the decision to put him there because my my immediate boss was with me in Edmonton and there was nobody else in Toronto so it was like okay Chase can Chase has these other skills where he can he can help sort of manage the situation there as well and then for myself it was like I say I think my years of of involvement with the NHL and and you know the the level of shooting that I produce and my relationships with player personnel, equipment, management, coaches, you know, everybody from top to bottom. I've, I've been around a long time. And, and I, as I say, I still, you still have to be a, a solid shooter. So, yeah. um, so I, I, I checked the right boxes, I guess. And, and I was super honored to be asked. And um, I, I really didn't know what to expect. Um, and, the first three weeks or so were, were an absolute living hell. Um, it, it was awful. Did you bring like, all your gear? Like, I'm going to bring everything I got because I have no idea. I brought everything in the kitchen sink, yes. And there was stuff that I didn't use, and that was a great thing. We were flying on a charter, so I could pile stuff in, and they didn't have to worry about, you know, like – no, yeah, Dave, just, you can't bring that case. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. So, so I had the luxury of bringing everything Good. and, uh, um, you know, it was nice to have that luxury. So it wasn't like, Oh my gosh, I got there and thinking like, cause that was a thing. We, we really had no idea what we were going to have access to and what we weren't, you know, what was allowed to come in after we were there, you know? So it was like, I'm bringing anything and everything that I, I think I will need. So, um, did you and put then, in lights or did you use what was existing? No. So the lights were there. 
Okay. Uh, there, there was already existing lights there, but there was only one set in Edmonton, and there was two of us. Oh. They just put in brand new, like, LED lighting, I think, the season before. Okay. Um, so the first game or the first period on strobe, I think. And then I was like, this makes no sense because there's only one set of lights. We've got a full sheet of ice. We have, we can go virtually anywhere we want. Okay. <laughs> and so they allowed like, you that. Would, yeah. Well, I limit myself to only half the ice, you know, cause it, it just made no sense to have to look, you know, I can, I can look down ice and shoot down ice, but I can't because Andy's on the lights at the other end and I'd be stepping on him. And so, as I say, with only one set in the building, it just didn't make sense. So I said to Andy, this is your building or your lights. It makes sense that you use them and I'll, I'll switch over to ambient light. Um, so that's what I did. Okay. So I, everything I shot there was ambient and it, it, I will always say that strobe is always going to be better no matter what. Like right. it just gives you that extra little crispness and that little pop. Like, I think like it's, it is, it is a, a, it's got really nice clean light. Um, but yeah, it was like, I mean, the first three or four days were just getting set up, getting acquainted, going through rules, regulations. And like, I just remember thinking like, it was so bizarre. Like, you know, thinking like, like, you know, we are when we're, you know, we, we go to the hotel, like we're wearing a mask essentially 24 hours a day. The only time you're not is when you're in your hotel room. Like you exit your hotel room, you had to be wearing a mask. You're at the arena, you're wearing a mask. And so I got very used to wearing a mask. Um, got very used to getting uh, swabs stuffed up my nose and down my throat. Oh, and, Jesus. Because <laughs> we, were, we were tested on a daily basis. And, but those first, uh, once, once we got actually getting into games and the puck was dropped, um, we had three games a day for the first few weeks. So I was getting up and, and arriving at the arena at about eight o'clock in the morning to get ready for like, I believe it was an 11 a.m. or noon game. I forget the schedule, but it, we were at the arena for 18 to 19 hours a day. Now, for those first three weeks. Were, did you not just leave gear there or did you pack up every night? No, that was the beautiful thing about being in the bubble. Nobody else being there. Like I would leave half my gear at my, at the hole that I sort of, you know, I, I we, we had the luxury of moving to other holes, mm -hmm. but there was, I'm like, okay, well, realistically, how often am I going to move around? This will be home base. Okay. Um, the corner that I chose. And, um, that was like I say, that was the, the luxury of it is like, I could literally leave stuff there all day. I could leave stuff overnight and I didn't have to worry about it. I would cart my, you know, cameras and lenses for the most part back to, to our, our office and put it in the office. But a lot of the stuff like, you know, wizards and, you know, my remote cameras and things, if I was going to move them the next day, I just leave them in the yeah, back your chair. And all that stuff, yeah. Just left it. yeah. Left everything. So, um, food, drinks, you know, like whatever, just left it, left it all there. And, um, it, I, I've had the unfortunate, um, 
misfortune, whatever, of, of having bad knees and lots of sports injuries over the years. I've had five knee surgeries. Five. So, yeah. Good Lord. So, sitting there um, in a cross-legged position um, for three games a day in an arena that it gets pretty darn cold in an empty arena. Yes. You know, even when you're there just for an hour. So you put yourself there for 18, 19 hours a day. And then for essentially nine of those hours, you're sitting there cross-legged, huddled up against the glass. Um, It started to wreak havoc on me physically. Um, My back, my legs, my legs were swelling like crazy. My knees were swelling. They were throbbing. Um, I have... As a result of my surgeries, I've I've always had uh, I've been on blood thinners for twelve years now. I think I've clotted several times, so I ended up having to see the one of the team doctors there to get looked at, and then ended up going. The NHLPA had a physiotherapist in the building, um, like in our in our bubble. So, along with the players, I was going to physio basically almost every day. So I had to fit that in because he was working my legs and the fluid and getting things moving and, and functioning again. And like I say, my back was all jacked up because you're, you know, you're kind of in this position all the time. Yeah, you're hunched. And I, day one, I basically went in and I said, like, why, like, because the, some of the video TV guys, they had the wells move back. And they were on their wheelie chairs going back and forth. And I'm like, why day one, I said this, like, why, why is, why do I have to have like sit on this, you know, the, the, the stands that go right up to the boards when we could retract the stands a couple of feet and I can have a well to sit in and sit up straight on a stool, like a, you know, like a normal person and (laughs) not, not be, you know, like, and they were like, Oh, well the, you know, like the draping that went over all the seats. Yes that's going to be a huge production because this is all put in with two by fours and we would have to bring car like the carpenters in to take this all up and retract the stands and then redo it. So unfortunately they wouldn't do it for me. Oh. And th- this was the building and they wouldn't do it. And two and a half weeks goes by and I'm a physical mess and it essentially took a, letter a note from the doctor that went to the building people that saying this man can't continue working because it's in it's it's a threat to his physical health because I was potential of me clotting um and and I couldn't walk like I was like walking like a, a 95 year old man with a cane like it was awful the pain was excruciating and like I say you're sitting in the cold everything slows how down, is your focus and sitting cross-legged it I mean, was, it was difficult. You're still it trying was. to work. Yeah, you're still trying to work, and you're you're trying to get all of the action. And like by game three in the day, you're going on like you know less than six hours of sleep a night. And I was literally eating like peanut butter and jam sandwiches all the time because that was all I had time to. You know, like my my boss was amazing. She would get food for me and bring it out. And but it's hard to eat like a proper meal when you're just because the game would end. And it would be like, okay, I'm getting the remote, getting the cards from the remotes and getting those off to our remote editors. And then before you knew it, it's warm up for the next game. Like it was like shooting a kid's tournament. You know what I mean? Where yeah. there was no break between things. So 
you're just constantly going and you've got to be on and I'm dealing with the physical ailments, which then it starts to creep into your head mentally. And then I'm like having to like, it got to the point where the game would end and I would, I would literally run over to the hotel attached to our bubble to go to physio and get worked on for 20 minutes so I could shoot like the third game. So it, it was, it was a nightmare, but the doctor got it so that, they had to move. They, they eventually came in after two and a half weeks and retracted those stands and created a well for me so I could sit on a proper stool and, you know, have, have the, the comfort of being able to shoot multiple games a day. Right. So, um, were you tethered in or were you still shooting on cards? Uh, no, I was shooting on cards. So we had, we had two remote editors, um, and, and both based out of Los Angeles, Victor and Rebecca, and mm-hmm. they would. Um, so basically, we 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 had a system. So it, it, even though I wasn't tethered, it worked out great because that was the thing. Like we had the luxury of like, okay, if I'm shooting the national anthem from the ice or something, like I could go out and shoot and come back in, or I can go up to the stands and shoot wide, or mm-hmm. I would go up to you know behind the net and shoot with like an 800 down ice. And so I, I didn't want to be tethered as well. I okay. wanted the luxury of being able to have the freedom to go around and, you know, and maybe running up to the catwalk cause it only took two minutes in the elevator. You could go up to the catwalk and I had a remote up there, but at the same time you could get different angles and use different focal lengths. So it was cool from a creative point of view to be able to go the places and, and shoot that way. So all I had to do is come back to my spot and my computer was literally sitting right beside me. Yeah. So all I, I would literally like there'd be a stop and play. I'd pop the card out, throw it in. I hit one button and boom, it would done. It was done. It would just ingest it. Like I was tagging images as I went. So they okay. had an idea of what to look for first, but um, yeah. And, and each stop and play. So it would just take a second, you know, pop the card out and just put it back in and away I would keep going. So it was pretty flawless the way that worked, you know, um, and they, they were pretty much putting up imagery in real time. I'm in Edmonton there in LA and, um, it, you know, things would be up within a minute type thing. If, if, you know, like it was, it was awesome that way. So how was your head mentally? Cause that's taxing 69 days in a bubble. Um, as time got on, I think like mentally I, I did better with it. It was really tough in the beginning, but once time got on and we got into two games a day and then we had the odd off day, um, that was good. Um, we had, uh, and then eventually where you get into one game every second, day, you know, so, so the pace slowed down and, um, I did want one more game. <laughs> I really wanted one more game in the Stanley Cup final, especially because, I did 81 games in the 69 days, one shy of a full regular season for a club, mm-hmm. 82 games. So I did want one more <laughs> selfishly. Um, but uh, it, it, you know, the things that the league and the Oilers organization did for us in the bubble, I think were amazing. Um, that That's what made it, when you look back on it, it was like, wow, yeah, they did go above and beyond. They they really tried to do everything that they could to make it special, to make it comfortable. Um, So, you know, and I think 
different for me. Like I, a lot of people that I talked to were going squirrely in the last month. Like they could not wait to get out of the bubble. Yeah. I wasn't like that. Like I say, I'm like, no, I want more hockey. I wanted it to keep going. Um, what prepared me for that was working on the ship for six or seven seasons and living on a ship in the polar regions that was only 350 feet long and having a cabin that is the size of my bathroom here at home. Um, that was my space. So the bubble in Edmonton, I was at a hotel that we had like a, you know, uh, it was like a five minute walk, you know, yes, it's all fenced off and everything, but we could from one end of the bubble to the other, it was like 1.4 kilometers or something. Okay. So I'm like, I've got all this space. I got all this room. I'm like, I'm used to being on a ship for months at a time mm-hmm. and then living in a tiny little room. So I think that served me well, okay. you know, and, and because I, I felt like I, I'm, I wasn't confined, you know, I didn't feel like a, like a caged animal trying to escape or anything. I, I'm like, yeah, we've got plenty here, you know, like outside of the entrance, main entrance to the arena, that was all fenced off, like the courtyard out, outside yeah. there. And we had, they had the big, huge screen outside there. We had movie nights out there. <laughs> um, we had fire pits. They carted in wood, at, like, all the time for us. Um, nice, like, you know, Adirondack or Muskoka chairs around the fires. We had hockey nets with, with sticks and, and all the, like, gloves and ball hockey equipment that we wanted. Um, we had basketball hoops. We had pickleball, um, pickleball courts. Um, we had Tim Hortons come in out and they, they had a trailer set up in the courtyard outside where we had sandwiches and coffee and drinks and donuts and snacks and things like that. Um, they brought in different food trucks that were available to us. Um, we had, I think, five restaurants within the bubble um, that we had access to. Um, we had two, two bars, one in the arena, three bars, I think one in the arena, (laughs) one and one in each hotel. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And, and when we were with one another and we were sitting and eating and socializing, obviously we could be without our masks or whatever. Um, but it, it was, it was, like I say, when I look back on it, it was amazing. You know, like, we had gym facilities. We had not, but in the beginning, it was so hard because you didn't have time to use this stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and the other cool part was like I, I was working with colleagues that I've worked with at the NHL for twenty plus years. So these are my road family. Like it wasn't like I was with a bunch of strangers. I'm I'm with people who I've known my whole career, who are friends, and like I say, I call my road family. So to be able to experience this with them was also super cool. And um, like I say, once we got into the latter half and, you know, we had some off days, like we were able to, or maybe you had a half day off or whatever it would be. They were busing us out to Commonwealth Stadium, and that was part of our bubble. The stadium wasn't open to anybody else. We could go there on the bus and go use the facility there. They had like Frisbees and footballs and baseballs and bats and gloves and um different things like that or you could just go lay in the sun or walk the track or run the track or the stairs or do whatever um they took us to a driving range one day um 
you know, which again, like, you know, they, they bus us there, we get off, we go out, we hit balls for a few hours, lounge around, they had food and drinks for us. And then we get bus back. So it, they did what they could, you know, and, um, it, it, I, I, like I say, when I look back on it, it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life that I hope I never have to repeat. Like it, it just, it was grueling, but at the same time, it was fun. Um, I got to shoot a sport that I love in a way that I've never been able to photograph before. Like to have the luxury of, of just being able to go anywhere you wanted and, and shoot from unique vantage points or just try different things and have the access that we did. That was the other thing that I was really unsure of in the beginning is things were so strict, you know, it's like, um, will we be able to go on the ice? Will we be able to go on the benches or in the locker rooms and, um, down the, you know, the back hallways and, and, and yes, we were able to do all those things. And I hope that the imagery that we put out there sort of showcased not just what was on the ice, but the things that were happening behind the scenes in the bubble as well, you know, like, um, you know, even to the point of like photographing the players outside playing basketball and just doing their, you know, when they had their off days doing their normal everyday things. So, um, it, it did, it really provided a, so many different unique levels of opportunity. Jeez. How, okay. How did the gear hold up? Um, held up. <laughs> Cause I mean, you're blowing I, through a lot of frames and you're shooting a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, most of it held up. I, I shoot uh Canon gear and I shoot, um, well in the bubble, I was shooting with one DX mark twos and three. Okay. Um, so, uh, my Mark three was happened to be brand new, so it, it held up no problem. Um, my, one of my Mark twos died on me though. Um, and I don't know, it was, I was using it in the net as my net cam and we were about halfway through, uh, I would say, um, maybe there was like three weeks left in the bubble, a little over halfway. And I went out in between periods to change the card out. And when I put the new card in, the camera wouldn't turn back on. And Taylor Hall hit it with a shot uh, the previous game, so there was there was shock damage to it. I found out after the fact, and the, the camera was just dead. It wasn't worth fixing. Um, and the, the the pickle that I found myself in at the time was uh, I'm in the bubble, and how do I get a new <laughs> camera? You know what I mean? Like I can't be without a net cam. And I'm going to be down, you know, so I'm down a body. And uh, part of the issue with COVID and and this being early on in COVID and things just not being what they were, I couldn't get a loaner from Canada. So um, I'm like, I was kind of surprised at that, you know, uh, like, it's like, okay, well, who, who's got this gear then? Like what? Right. Where's it at? You know, nothing, nothing in the world is going on. Why can't I get a camera? And I I have to give props to my local Canon rep here in Southern Ontario, Jim, who, because uh, I reached out to him and, and Jim actually sent me his own camera, his own personal camera to use. So he packed it up and couriered it to me and I had it the next day. Um, and then our department as an NHL images had lent a 
Canon uh, 1DX Mark II to the social media department. So we we had to sort of, you know, I hated to do it, um, especially to the guy that, because that, I, you know, I know him personally and everything, but it was like, I'm sorry, Pete, but we have to take our camera back. Yeah. So um, ended up, because I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put one of the league's camera or sorry, I'm not going to put the loner, the personal camera of this guy into the net. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I need the league camera to utilize as the net cam. And he had to go, you know, use a, a, a more, I guess, inferior camera body for, for social, but um, it was our camera. Um, so, so yeah, that was the, the one thing that didn't survive it. Um, everything else survived. Wow. Um, fortunately though. So what an um, experience, man. Unbelievable. It was, it was, it was a wild ride. Um, you know, and I got to know other people. That was a cool thing too. There's people that I, I, I had known for 20, 25 years, but I didn't know. You know, they're the, they're the people that you see all the time on a regular basis. Right. Some of them, which I've known too long to ask them their name. <laughs> Those kind of people like, oh, yeah, I've known this guy for 20 years, but we never hung out. It's just maybe you have yeah. lunch or in the media room together or mm-hmm. something. And, you know, so I got to know people better that way from like the broadcasting side and um, some different people at the league that I'd known for a long time because there was only so many of us in there. So. It, it 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 built relationships. It, it and it and it firmed up really old relationships. It made them even tighter and closer. So because uh, I think when any like anything, I always said it about being on the ship and working in the ship. When you're thrown into these extreme conditions and tight quarters, it it allows for people to bond fast and hard. So you develop these relationships in a way that if if you didn't have those tight quarters and these extreme conditions that you just, your relationship wouldn't be the same. It, it really does make for really great relationship building to be yeah, honest. It's really, it has to, has, to, so, has that, to. so that was, that was again, one of the, one of the benefiting side products of, of the bubble is firming up more relationships with people who I've, I've known a long time, you know, cause it was an extreme thing to go through and, and such a, at a time in which, you know, it was so such a bizarre time in our in our world in our life. Like it really was. And to think, like, you want to talk about like putting pressure on yourself. It's it's like uh, at one point it, it hit me where it's like, you know, there was four of us shooting, but it, essentially it's like I, I'm like thinking about myself and like I am the I am the the eyes to the world for what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Like I'm uh, there's only two of us in here shooting this and pumping it out to the rest of the world. Like there's nobody else here. So if I don't get it or if he doesn't get it, then it's not seen. You know what I mean? Like it's, so you start to think about the, you know, and that weight kind of like, you know, pushes down on you and you, you, you do put this added pressure on yourself. I think once that, realization happened of like yeah i'm the only like I, 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 that's it like there's nobody else here this isn't a stanley cup final where there's 35 other photographers or you know what i mean like there's just us and so that that 
that kind of at times messed with your head a little bit, I think, like, cause you, you, you know, you start to realize that not just like, and, and I think more than anything was where the pressure came from was like all the other team photographers and people that shoot hockey on a regular basis that are looking at your work under a microscope, essentially. <laughs> yes. Like, why, is, why is he there? And I'm not. So you, you did, you put this pressure on yourself to produce, like you, you wanted to do the best that you possibly could. Yeah. If you two missed it, it never happened. Yeah. And, and so, you, and you've got all these guys from, you name it, my, my team. And they're wondering if he misses those shots, we're not going to have them ever record. Won't, we won't have it. So that yeah. is a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. Yeah, it's but like I say, it's it's good pressure. Mm-hmm. Like I say, I I I don't let that type of pressure weigh so much on me that you I can. crumble. I I do thrive on it. Like I I like I like I don't like being in the spotlight myself. I like the spotlight of the big game or the moment. You know what I mean? Like I I there are people in this world who are like I don't know if I could handle that. You know, and do I want that pressure? Do I, you know, and I'm like, yeah, give it to me. I want game seven overtime of the Stanley Cup final. I want that winning goal to be in front of me in my end. Like it's, I I want, I I want the opportunity to, you know, to rise to the occasion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I I, I don't want to be sitting on the bench. I want to be out there. Yeah. You know. Um, so I, I do weirdly enjoy that, you know, that type of pressure, I guess. That's the competitiveness in you, right. From the, from your being an athlete, athletic days to, you know, who we are as photographers, we want to make great photos. Yeah, Like I say, I think that's, yeah, you, you want to, and I think that's why I've had longevity is because I do take pride in the work that I do and, I want to produce the best possible work that I can, you know, whether it, whether it is my wildlife or my sports or whatever it is in photography that I'm doing, I'm, I'm going to give it my all no matter what. Tell me about the polar bear foundation that you're working with. Um, yeah. Polar bears international. Um, they are, I guess the premier or, or the biggest, um, organization in the world that is um, doing all that they can do to look out for the future of polar bears and, and their environment that they need uh, to survive in. So um, polar bears have been polar bears and great white sharks are my two favorite animals since I was a little kid, since before I can remember. Really? And I dreamt my entire life of photographing those animals. I always talked about, getting underwater and shooting in a, in a cage with great white sharks. I always, you know, when I was nine years old, the first time I wrote a letter to the Tundra Bucket Company in Churchill, Manitoba, Northern Manitoba, the most Southern population of polar bears to get a brochure on going to shoot polar bears on the Tundra Buggies. I was nine. I couldn't afford it on my allowance and was heartbroken. And it took me, you know, 30 some odd years to eventually get up there and shoot polar bears in the wild. But uh, I did it. I love that and, you thought that you could, uh, dad, can we just wing this? <laughs> How much will this cost? 
um, so, so yeah, I, I, those are, you know, two great loves of my life. And ironically enough, it was the year was, I had a few canceled shark expeditions in private in previous years. And I'd been up to the Arctic before, but not seen any polar bears on my previous times in the Arctic. Um, so 2016 within months of one another, I got to photograph and see both great white sharks and polar bears for the first time in my life, starting in 2016. So that was pretty cool for me. Um, as far as the bears go, they, they're always going to top the list for me. Uh, um, they just hold a special place in my heart. And when I worked on the ship, I was working a couple seasons with a polar bear biologist, um, my friend, Jody bear, Jordan, like to call her. And, uh, <laughs> Jody, um, was working at the university of Alberta, polar bear biologist, and she was doing some work with polar bears international or PBI as I'll, I'll refer to them. And, um, she reached out to me at one point in 2017 or 18 and said, I think that, you know, I'd like to introduce you to some of the people from PBI. I think you would be a good fit for one another. And, um, I was like, okay, that would be great. And, you know, hopefully the opportunity will come up sometime. And, um, sure enough, it did. And in, and in 20, uh, 2018, Jody made that connection, um, with, with, um, the couple of the people at PBI and myself. And then, um, we ended up meeting in Toronto because they had a, an event, a charity event um, called a polar bear affair where they, um, we're having this big gala at the Four Seasons in Toronto with all a lot of their main donors to raise funds for a new facility they built in Churchill to house the scientists, researchers, and, and people like myself and, and, and other team members when they go up there. Wow. So um, they invited me to this gala, and that was the first introduction I had to, to meeting the people um, that work with PBI. And then... Later that year, I found myself myself up in Svalbard, Norway, which is a small island chain in, in the Arctic Circle. That um, beautiful, beautiful location, and um, I found myself there in Svalbard at the same time that PBI was doing an ex- expedition. So we ended up meeting before both of us went out, and sort of had a little meeting where we're just jotting stuff, notes on like the back of napkins type thing. And um, trying to figure out how I could fit in and what role I could potentially play. And that was the first time when the idea of an ambassador role came up with PPI. So um, that kind of got bounced around a little bit and, you know, sort of put on the back shelf for a little while. And But the, the conversation kept going, you know, and it took a little while. And then in july of 2021 i think it was um yeah it was yeah 20 2021 yeah i got a call from or an email from uh one of the girls at pbi and she's like can we set up a zoom meeting we'd like to we've been doing a lot of talk about this ambassador idea so we would like to talk further about that and long story short they created this position created this role They've had a gentleman, uh, a great photographer, Daniel Cox, who's been involved with PBI for many, many, many years. 
and Dan has always been their their main guy. So Dan is um, Dan is sort of like the, the the chief photographer for PBI. And then there's my friend Jenny Wong, who strangely enough, I couldn't go to Churchill in 2020 because of the pandemic. Three weeks, three and a half weeks before Manitoba closed their borders to Ontario East. So Jenny lives in Alberta. The, so because I couldn't go and I had some things lined up with PBI for the first time, I was really distraught. And I was like, well, my friend Jenny is going and I think Jenny would be a great fit to, to, you know, connect with you guys. So I sort of made that introduction between Jenny and, and the people at PBI and Jenny did such a wonderful job for them that, the next year in 2021, when they introduced or launched their photo ambassador program, they brought both Jenny and I into the fold. And so Jenny and I have now worked on a couple of different projects with them together and we're continuing to grow it. And that program, um, from what I understand is going to expand. And, um, it's, it's again, for me on a personal level to think that, not only did this happen with me on my sports side of things, it's now happening in my wildlife side of things, you know, to grow up loving the game of hockey and to work with the national hockey league is beyond my wildest dreams. Just as, just as, as equal growing up being a lover of polar bears and, and to have the passion that I always did and to now be, uh, you know, linked to or representing the organization that is the leading polar bear conservation organization in the world, like pinch, somebody has got to pinch me, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like it's, it's pretty incredible. And um, again, it's, it's only helps, you know, it's helped me on a personal level with, with my shooting. It's given me opportunities that never wise would have had. And to, the biggest thing I think is to get to work with these people who have years and years and years of, of combined, you know, polar bear and polar uh, expertise and knowledge. So to be out in the field with these people, to be housed with them and eating our meals together. And it's like so much of it is, you know, polar bear related talk I've learned so much, so much more than I ever could have dreamed of in such a short period of time. So it's really helped me when I've been in the field to better understand the bears and other Arctic animals and just the environment. And um, as I say, the opportunities that have come my way and the, you know, the people that I get to work with are, are fantastic. So it's, it's been a real special opportunity. Um, And at the same time, I'm working with people and working with an organization that is doing some good that um, it's, it's, it's a different feeling I get with my nature and wildlife photography because I have been now tied into or woven into the fabric of uh, a number of um, charitable organizations that are trying to do better for our climate, trying to do better for our natural world and, I'm super proud to be affiliated with them and super proud that I have a voice and a skill set that, that brings value to the table that will help hopefully help 
steer people and other organizations in the right direction to do what's right for our planet, for our future, for the bears future, for the Arctic, for all of that stuff. So it's, it's, it's a different feel. Like when I, you know, growing up and and like I say, still work in hockey, obviously, but when you shoot a great sports photo, um, it's, it's, uh, I don't even really know how to properly put this into words, but like, when you present that to somebody or somebody opens up a magazine or whatever, it's like, man, that's cool. That's so cool. And like, it's just, I, the number of times I've heard the word cool to, to describe us, you know, and it's like, and it's like, yeah, it, like, yes, it is inside. I'm like, yeah, thank you. You know, that, that feels great. It's awesome. And it is cool. But doing conservation photography, it, it's a total different feeling or the sense of, of, I don't even want to say satisfaction. I feel greedy saying satisfaction when it comes to it, but like, it's like, it's given me a different sense of purpose. Yeah. Um, and, and great pride. I've always had great pride in my work, but to know that I'm, I'm doing something positive that is, is really helping to try make a positive change in this world through my skill set as a photographer is pretty special. Like yeah. I don't have science-based background. I don't have the research knowledge and everything. Um, I don't have the big bucks that some philanthropists have. Like I, but I do have a skill set and a knowledge that I can, I can do something positive, you know, in this world. And, and I, that, that to me is super special. Um, yeah, to be able to work with an organization like that, that, is a top-notch, you know, world-class organization with people who are so passionate about our natural world and these animals is, it's beyond special. Yeah. I mean, it's real, real purpose. It's you're, you're, you could shoot a dunk, you could shoot a home run. So everybody will tell you it's cool, but if you can make an image of a polar bear that gets some kid to decide they want to go into that field or God forbid someone writes a check to help with some funding. That's a real difference. Nobody writes Absolutely. a check on your and dunk photos. <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're right. And it's, um, and those are things that, that I, they're, they're real tangible things that I've seen happen. What you just said, you know, like I know that it's inspired people to make, donations it's inspired some big donations it has inspired people to literally pick up a camera and and alter their life change their career path like i'm getting shivers down my spine thinking about it because there's a couple people that 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 that's what they've told me like you your work has changed my life like i my friend John, who a couple of years ago was, you know, working in Michigan and, and doing sales for many years, the reason he originally picked up a camera was because of my Lake Erie stuff. And he's like, this is so freaking cool. I, I, I want to try my hand at this. So he went out and bought a camera and he started to do it and then realized like, well, maybe the water isn't quite my forte, but he also loved the animals and he started to, to do it more. So Long story short, last year, John, when he picked up the phone to say to me, 
I quit my job and I'm, I'm taking a guiding job in Alaska and I'm doing the wildlife thing full time because of you. It's like, Oh my God, like to, to know that you've had a direct impact on somebody's life path like that through the medium that I've chosen to share with the world is beyond special. Like wow. that's something that money just can't buy. And I, I said to John, I'm like, okay, well, if it doesn't work out, you can't come back. <laughs> you know, like, thankfully it's working out for him so far. And, you know, I was going like, to say, somebody's to check John's um, head. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm like, it's, you know, yeah, it's, it's not an easy industry to, to make a living in, but it's super special to know that the work that I've done in, in my nature and wildlife photography has inspired some people to, to, to change their, alter their course and to, to not just because they want to take photos, but because they also want to make a difference in, yeah. in conservation. Like that's huge. Like, so that, like I say, that's stuff that money just can't buy. And, yeah. um, it, it, it's, it's a different sense of pride in my photography to, to, like I say, to, to genuinely know that I am making a difference in people's lives. And, you know, I, I, I recently took a break from social media. I had enough life stuff happening with me. Mm -hmm. uh, I was busy to start the year and then life just unraveled in a bad way. And I was away from social media for a while. And just this past week got back on it. And the messages I've received and some of the comments are, are really special to know that the work that I'm doing in my nature and wildlife, when I'm not sharing it with the world, there are people that really do genuinely miss it, that the, the impact it has on their daily life. And it might just be a few moments of their day or a few seconds of their day where they're looking at my post and reading what I'm putting out there with it. But to get that feedback of how much they miss it and how much that it impacted their own daily life because I wasn't there anymore tells me something that, like good that I am doing something good in this world. I am doing something that has meaning and that does truly inspire others, not just in photography, but to be better citizens, to be better to our planet and to look at our natural world and the animals that live in it more as equals and not as something lesser than, than our species. Yeah. You're putting a smile on people's faces. Good Lord. I mean, that's like, you know, what we want. We're not, you know, here to make people's lives miserable. Our, what we hope is what we're, what we're making is people inspires them and it gets excited and brightens up their day. You know, and what you're, what you're doing is it's, it's beautiful work. I mean, I'm going to say I'm going to speak for the polar bears and they're very happy with this work because this is unbelievable. If I, if I was a polar bear ambassador for their talking, you've making them look so enjoyable and happy and fun. I mean, some of them will look like, I mean, for the love of God, that, that three polar, uh, polar bear shot on that, on that cliff where it's just the stark contrast with the three of them and the, and they're in that reddish mountain that doesn't even look real looks like a total like you know there should be a dragon coming down next burning them to the stake it's it is an absolute stunning photograph like my god that would be the world's most worst puzzle <laughs> that would drive people to drink <laughs> but it but 
to have it on my wall, that stops people. Thank you. That's it's beautiful work, God. Dave. Beautiful Thank work. It means a lot. It does. Yeah. What's next for Dave? What has he got on tap next? Well, um, personally, just continuing to try and get better with my photography, okay. keep improving it. I'm always trying to learn new things and improve and pushing my, my own limits. Um, so I will just continue to work on that. Um, next up, nature-wise, um, wildlife-wise, I'm uh, going to be going to Yellowstone and the Tetons um, coming up in May. Um, never oh. been to either, and I'm fortunate to work with uh, another photographer, um, be featured in a gallery on Nantucket called Mother Wolf Gallery, and um, that's who I'm going out with, with one of these other photographers who frequents the area a lot, so I've, I've got kind of my own personal guide, um, you know, and, and, and photo buddy wrapped up into one. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to that because it's going to be something different for me. And um, I'll continue to shoot locally around here until then. And then shortly after that, I'll be back into more hockey. And June is always a busy month. So ah, I'm, yes. <laughs> I'm back on the Stanley Cup final. It will be my 25th Stanley Cup final, which, again, I have to pinch myself to think like, Half of my life, I turned 50 in July, and this will be my 25th Stanley Cup. Like, half of my life, I've got to see Lord Stanley presented or will get to see Lord Stanley presented. And um, that just blows me away to think, you know, there's a 12-year-old kid in me that it's like, pinch me. I, I, I never would have believed it. And that 12-year-old kid comes out every Stanley Cup. You know, like I love that stuff. So I've got the cup coming up and then uh, the awards and draft in Nashville um, shortly thereafter. So, um, so yeah, it's an exciting couple of months coming up and um, doing, you know, both both sides of my world. Um, doing Good. the things that I love. Good. All right. Well, we got to get together after you get 25 in and we'll talk about each one from one to 25. We'll rank them. <laughs> You laugh, but I could, I could, you could probably do that. And I could probably, like, I could, I could almost tell you what every single, well, I could tell you every single matchup of those Stanley Cup finals. And I could probably tell you what the series ended in and even dates it ended on. Like, I'm really weird about that stuff. So if you ever did want to go into intimate detail about 25 Stanley Cups, I could. All right. Well, (laughs) we'll make it a date and we'll, I'll give you a break and we'll do it sometime around July. So you catch your breath in June when you're done with the Stanley Cup. Dave, I can't thank you enough. Um, You know, you, you got me my, my official NHL goal cam. What do we say in 98 after I, I had my first, I had, there was a guy, Andy Bernstein and I both got, got one from a guy in Orlando or something. Cause we had to get our flash wizards in it. It was massive, right? Yeah. Had to fit the flash wizards in it. And it had like clamps on the side. And then when I got yours, it was like this nice, clean padded. It was all white, you know, it was all taped up. It had the official sticker on it. And I beat the crap out of that thing, but I do have to thank you for that. I, it, it, it got me a lot of photos and a lot of work. So I'm really happy to hear that. Yeah. I am. It's. I'd rather. I'd rather the net cam take you know the beating than your gear as well. So yeah. <laughs> that's what they're made for. That's right? what they're made for. Appreciate your time with this. 
you know, uh, I tell you, I, I can't listen to Gordon Lightfoot anymore without thinking about you. Um, your work is inspiring. It's beautiful. You know, you're, you're an absolute rarity, Dave, because you're not supposed to be shooting a sports at the level that you're shooting it at and then go outside and freeze your ass and make the pictures that you do. <laughs> you're supposed to be at least half crappy at one of them, damn it. You're making the rest of us look bad. Wow. Well, that, that's pretty nice of you to say. Yeah. I, I, honestly, that means that means a ton. It does, because I, I, like I say, I know people usually have their forte. Mm-hmm. You know, they excel at one thing. And um, I, I'm really, really fortunate to hear that from you and, and from a lot of my colleagues. Uh, the feedback that I get is it's pretty special. So that that just fuels my fire. You know, I, like I say, I don't take any of this for granted. It could all go away in a heartbeat and um, comments like that just fuel me to keep pushing myself and, and doing better. Well, you're doing great work, my friend. Keep up the beautiful work. Thank you so much. Matt. I, right. I, 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 it means a ton. All right. Thanks for coming and, on. And thank you. Thank you for having me on. I, I, I know it was a long talk, and, uh, but I really enjoyed it, and, and I hope our listeners did too. Yeah, absolutely. They got a ton out of it. I know I did. My God, my notes look like I, I was writing some kind of secret lettering down. I've gotten notes. You're dropping names. There's things I want to good. I'm going to definitely keep my wife away from your website because it'll cost me a fortune. I, I, I got a, a $4,000 plumbing problem that was getting fixed while we were doing this podcast. If she sees any of these photos, I'm just going to have to just send you a PayPal account directly. Well, give me your email, her email address. No, no, Dave. She's staying away. It's absolutely not a chance, my friend. Dave, thank you so much. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, keep doing the great job that you're doing. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much. All right. We'll talk. Awesome. Thank you for listening to part two of my conversation with Dave Sanford. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the like button and become a subscriber to the podcast. Remember, Jessica Conversation is on Instagram. And you can find all of our past shows at the website, jessicaconversation.com. Thank you for listening.